0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the PolMaps Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is Neil Ketchley. He's a lecturer in Middle East politics at King's College, London, and author of the new book, Egypt in a Time of Revolution, Contentious Politics in the Arab Spring, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Neil, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for inviting me on.
0: So this is um, one of a a number of books that have recently come out about the Egyptian uprising and about the Arab Spring more generally. Uh, What do you see as the major unique contribution of this book?
1: Sure, I mean, And just to briefly summarize it, I would say that the contribution is is both empirical and and conceptual. Um, Despite, I think, the the huge volume of literature, both on the Egyptian revolution of 2011 and the Arab Spring more broadly, many of the kind of key moments and episodes uh, from that period have really evaded uh, systematic empirical investigation. And so the book really tries to make a, a contribution here by drawing on a range of, of new and unique uh, data sources and methods, uh, from analysing uh, video footage of crowd dynamics in here uh, radio uh, police radio transcripts from the kind of formative early days of the, of the mobilisation, uh, to event data from Arabic language uh, newspapers. In terms of the kind of broader conceptual uh, contribution, it, the argument is really geared around uh, an, an assumption and a belief that the dynamics of street-level mobilisation and contentious politics more generally are really formative in their own right. And here, the book argues that the ways in which Egyptians banded together and ousted Mubarak were not simply kind of manifestations of of maturing grievances, but also powerfully constituted uh, the post-Mubarak process. And if you want to understand uh, the kind of key questions and episodes, you really have to take street politics very seriously.
0: And so one of the things which is so fascinating at the beginning of the book is that you actually do manage to muster a great deal of open source data to see things that I think you're correct in saying that many of the scholars who have studied this really haven't seen. Um, and so, for one, you place a lot of emphasis on a reinterpretation of the nature of violence during the 18 days of the revolution. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Why do you, what do you see in the violent aspects of, of, of the uprisings in those 18 days? Sure.
1: So so I think it's just worth caveating and saying that I I don't think that the 18 days of mass mobilisation and kind of starting on the 25th of January 2011, ending on the 11th of February uh, with the ousting robotics, should simply be viewed as uh, through the lens of violence. But actually, but but instead that if you really want to to understand how the mobilisation unfolded, how it is that uh, actually what I think are probably irrelevant to the small number of people managed to oust an otherwise seemingly well-entrenched dictator of over uh, 30 years, that actually violence did play a very, very important part, and that this um, that the role of violence has been somewhat excised from uh, many of the tellings of the mobilisation. So what I do is I begin, I tell, I begin telling the story not um, on the 25th of January, uh, with the kind of initial occupation of Madana Tahrir, but instead on the 26th of January, uh, and not in Cairo, but in Suez, in the Arabayin district. Where well, you see a series of very violent clashes uh, between uh, roving uh, bands of uh, protesters uh, and uh, police forces and, and so called central security forces, leading to the death of several protesters, the first of whom, Mustafa Mahmoud, who's the first martyr of the 25th of January revolution. And that this in turn sparks a series of uh, street battles, culminating in the burning down of the Arbein uh, police station in the Suez. And this then sets a pattern of uh, kind of revenge attacks by uh, the kin and neighbours of protesters killed on anti-mobotic marches, where in the end they, they burn down perhaps as many as a quarter of all the police stations in the country during the formative uh, first days, and in particular in the big cities in Cairo, in Giza and Alexandria, where over half of the police stations are burnt down. And this in turn I tried to show... Isn't just shouldn't just be understood in isolation as a as a as a phenomenon that kind of played out, but actually profoundly and powerfully inspired and enabled other kinds of street politics. So, on the 28th of January, for example, the so-called Friday of Anger, we have really detailed, a really unique data sources like police radio transcripts that show that. Um, senior police officers faced on the one hand with with marches and peaceful demonstrations on the other very violent attacks on their basis of operation basically withdrew the police from the street not in some kind of orchestrated conspiracy but actually just to defend their police stations and this in turn created new opportunities for protesters to be able to establish protest occupations and scale up
0: and that really complicates the, uh, the common narrative of a regime which basically chose to, uh, you know, to not engage uh, with violence and complicates the narrative of it being purely a nonviolent movement uh, which succeeded through its embrace of nonviolence.
1: Sure. I mean, empirically, the, the claim that the regime refused to engage with violence or the claim, for example, that the police kind of systematically withdrew from the streets um, across the country is actually not, you can't really sustain it when you look closely at, at how the events unfold. In fact, in governorates where um, the police stations were not burned down, the Police continued to attack and repress protesters for the entire 18 days, in turn leading to uh, new cycles of uh, repression and retribution and, um, from from residents. Um, there is, of course, a very ironic implication of all of this, which is that the kind of so-called Tahrir model of, of mobilisation that emerges in modern Tahrir and elsewhere during this period, is often seen as inspiring uh, mobilizations elsewhere. But in this, only part of what we might think of as the repertoire of mobilization diffuses. So people take a lot of inspiration from the events of Egypt. They go and occupy central squares and cities across the world, not just the Arabic-speaking Middle East. But actually, one very integral part of that, which is to this kind of unarmed collective targeting of the kind of forces of order, the, the coercive apparatus, doesn't diffuse and, of course, in every subsequent case where they actually copy this model, it doesn't work.
0: And One thing just before we move on, just to go back to it, with the data sources that you're using, is that it really seems like you've done a great job of exploiting a lot of material which is out there on the Internet, uh, you know, in the, the newspapers being published at the time, which, um, quite surprisingly, a lot of scholars haven't really exploited to this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that, that um, at the risk of sounding cheesy, it's really a privilege to be a researcher in, in the 21st century. There is so much information available, both English language but also Arabic language information, that's available in archives, in libraries, uh, in on the internet, that, uh, you're right, uh, people really haven't made as much use of as they might have done. Um, it is the case that, I mean, if we take, for example, um, the, the attacks on police stations, I mean, Actually, in Arabic news media, this is very well known. In Egyptian society, this actually doesn't come as a surprise to many people. They knew that many police stations, especially in the, in the larger urban cities, were burnt down during the first days of the revolution. And, indeed, this was front-page news in Arabic-language newspapers. It actually wasn't very hard to find it. It was kind of staring it, staring at you in the face if you just bothered to pick up to pick these newspapers up. But people didn't seemingly bother to do this, with a, with a couple of very notable exceptions. And that is surprising. Um, many of the techniques that are used in the books... Um, one of the, the kind of key ones is is so is is creating a so called event catalog is is something is a method that was invented over 50 years ago by social historians like George Rudé and Charles Tilly you know which which are not in any way innovative they're the kind of the the bread and butter for anybody who studies protest and yet again with a couple of notable exceptions nobody's really bothered to do that not only with the egyptian case but actually any of the other arab spring cases and so We don't really know, I would say, that much about the patterning and temporal cycles and and distributions of these mobilizations, even until now.
0: Now you move on from the revolution and you look at the transitional period, and once again you seem to have a somewhat revisionist take on uh, the role the Muslim Brotherhood played in the uh, transitional period and the reasons for the failure of the Morsi presidency. So just briefly, to explain to us you know, what you think was really going on in that period and uh, kind of how those decisions were made.
1: Sure, so I, I suppose that I take, uh, you know, the kind of whole point of the intervention of the book is trying to read and write uh, kind of street level activism as a kind of a formative force into the unfolding political process, uh, often border it goes And in this, I take as this kind of puzzle why it is that the Muslim brothers, as soon as Mubarak leaves on, on the 11th of February 2011, why the Muslim brothers kind of leave the street. Now, in this, it's worth also noting but there is a kind of, I think, quite pernicious uh, narrative and, I think, conspiracy around the Brotherhood's role in the revolution, one in which it's kind of painted as a, as a very cynical late riser, as, 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 a, as a body of people who basically hijack the kind of legitimate revolutionary aspirations of the Egyptian people by kind of being present during the later days, and then, of course, they disappear. They leave the street. So one of the first things I do is actually just try to establish were the Muslim brothers present. And, and even though it's, it's quite difficult to kind of get at it, it does seem to be that if we just look at fatality statistics, if we look at where people are being killed during the revolution, who's being killed, if we look at patterns of mobilization, at least reported in the Arabic language press, the brothers are seemingly there from the very beginning, not particularly in very large numbers on the first couple of days, but otherwise, you know, they do shed blood, and then they continue to play, I think, quite a key role in sustaining the mobilization until Mubarak goes. And then they disappear. And and, and this why is, I think, quite an interesting puzzle because, first of all, it generates quite a significant grievance. And um, One of the kind of overarching themes of the book is that Egypt in this point was what's called in a time of revolution. Right, For a lot of Egyptians, they really believed that they were kind of taking part in this unfolding revolutionary process. And they weren't prepared to really accept perhaps a more kind of uh, sleazy, kind of oligarchical, uh, incomplete, democratic transition of the kind that I think really started to unfold as soon as uh, Mubarak stepped down and the Skaff took over. And they really pointed at the Muslim brothers' absence from street-level mobilisation as really evidence that they had been kind of co-opted and that they were traitors and they were betraying the kind of revolutionary principles. And, and I take that, and I and I kind of use that insight, and I kind of problematize it, and say, well, actually, if we look comparatively at other kinds of democratic transitions, the Muslim Brothers' behaviour is actually not strange at all. Like, usually, we now know that the modal outcome of uh, of revolutionary situations is not actually a revolutionary outcome of a kind of of an Iranian style or a Chinese style or a French revolution or, or Bolshevik Russian revolution. But instead it, it tends to be some kind of quite disappointing form of democratic transition that culminates in, in civilians consolidating some very small degree of democratic authority, but in which street protest kind of disappears in a way. And the Egyptian case is kind of odd because that doesn't happen or at least it doesn't happen among certain important sectors notably the kind of the secular forces and the activist forces for whom they don't really have electoral machines not, you know, the, the prospect of elections doesn't really hold out for much much for them and so they really kind of concentrate on still trying to rally the forces in Madonna Tahrir on symbolic Fridays and so on and so forth while the brothers focus on a different kind of repertoire a different kind of machine, an electoral machine and so they try to, 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 to run for office and this kind of parliamentarization process as Charles Tilly calls it is so kind of Familiar and almost banal that the brothers' kind of participation in it is is just not odd. The fact that the Mr. Brothers made a deal with the military is actually how democratic transitions are supposed to happen. In a sense, it's not a bad thing. What I think is very what I think is more surprising about the Egyptian case and why it really stands out as being kind of different from other recent episodes of democratization is that the other forces, the other elements of the revolutionary coalition. They don't make a deal with the military at the beginning. Instead, they they, pursued a, they decide to pursue their aims through the streets. And it's only very much later that they decide to make a deal. And that this has all kinds of implications for the prospects of, of democratization in the country.
0: And then... Once again, then violence plays an important role in how, the, uh, in how this transition unfolds. There's the clashes in, in late uh, 2011, and then there's as things start to go bad after the presidential election, you have the attacks on Muslim Brotherhood headquarters and things like that. And once again, I think you do a really uh, useful service here by simply tracking the way that you have these parallel processes unfolding.
1: Thanks. So um, I think that that, um, one of the the kind of great ironies about looking at the Egyptian case is that we often think of kind of street protest as being the sole preserve of kind of progressive forces. And in Egypt that's, that's never been the case. I mean, not only were Groups like the Muslim Brothers, who you might not call progressive, um, were at the forefront of the of the 18 days of the mobilisation. But protest itself, and, and and kind of more broadly, contentious politics, um, forms of collective violence, etc., also start to become a very prominent role part of the political process. And in this, there is no kind of monopoly uh, owned by the kind of the, the heartwarming activists. Instead, protest actually starts to be used by... Um, what we might think of as counter-revolutionary forces or old regime actors who start to launch uh, street-level occupations of the kind, the Tahrir, and also, as you mentioned, attacks on Muslim Brotherhood officers. And so the book tries to, as in the kind of context of trying to understand why it is that the democratic transition fails, uses these attacks on Muslim Brotherhood officers to set the scene for a broader destabilization campaign in which the military, the interior ministry, and very powerful kind of old regime elites Basically facilitate and orchestrate street-level contentious politics as a means of kind of rolling back democratization, culminating in these kind of very spectacular events that ha- that occur on the 30th of June uh, 2013, you see very large anti-Muslim brotherhood protests, which then provide the pretext for the military seizure of power.
0: Why? Why do you think that the, uh, the kind of the activist side of this uh, were willing to go along with this? Uh, you know, it, why were they so easily captured by this um, by this destabilization campaign?
1: So I think there's kind of two elements of it. One of the one is just is, is simple cynicism and a, and a and a belief that the Muslim Brotherhood, kind of, and, and Mohammed Morsi in particular, were really harbingers of a kind of Islamist takeover that they um didn't feel that they could compete with electorally and so saw in the military a kind of a safe way out the second um kind of element of it i think and this speaks to, again, the broader theme of the book, this idea that Egypt was in a time of revolution, that, that, that a significant number of Egyptians, um, if not significant enough to ever really win an election, but significant enough to be to launch quite disruptive street protests, saw themselves as really in as, an, as an, an unfolding revolutionary process. And so, in some ways, the belief that they could kind of uh, leverage the kind of military's destabilization campaign for their own end was because they thought that they would triumph in the end. They really thought that the military had, had a very bad experience in the kind Kind of brief period it was in control during the, transi- the, the transitional process that started after Mubarak stepped down, and they thought that, that really that there was a kind of a revolutionary telos that they were going to have to accelerate and bring bring, bring bring to reality by simply hitching their star to, to the military, and that they, they would then get the military later in some
0: sense. You know, when you go back and you look at it, I mean, in some ways, it almost sounds as if the Muslim Brotherhood's fatal mistake was that it was willing to accept this transition from revolution to democratic transition. And, and but ironically, that's exactly what the international community and I think most of the academic community would have advised them to do, and in fact probably were advising them to do. So, you know, do you think that this could ever have succeeded, or was this simply a doomed uh, enterprise from the beginning?
1: So it's obviously very difficult to kind of get into kind of counterfactuals. Um, I do spend quite a bit of time in the book looking at this particular episode in late 2011, the so-called events of Mohammed Mahmoud Street, when you have what appears to be the last real chance for a kind of broad revolutionary coalition to oust uh, the military, to reset the transitional process, and to really see some kind of civilian democratic consolidation of power, or something bigger than that, a more kind of substantive, far-reaching demo- revolutionary process. And in this this period, we see uh, a process of backsliding by the military. We see an increasingly hesitant Muslim Brotherhood, who on the one side can see that elections are kind of in their grasp, with this whole democratic transitional project is, is almost there. They can almost realise that they can almost get their foothold into the state. But also, you know, some really rambunctious and energetic forms of street protests that are unfolding not only in medan Tahrir but also elsewhere across the country. And here the Muslim Brotherhood really have this kind of really key decision, whether they go and join the protests in Mohammed Mahmoud, or whether they kind of stay at home and concentrate on the elections. And of course, we know that they chose the latter, of course. They decided to stay at home. And they decided to, in many ways, abandon the revolutionaries to their fate. And it's that that kind of key Juncture, that key turning point of the revolution, that there's almost a whole chapter on uh, in the book, which is it could have been somewhat different. That the, bro- the Brotherhood could have mobilised Mohammed Mahmoud, they could have reset the transitional, pro- 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 they could have reset the transitional uh, process, and they could have then solved this kind of problematic status that they had developed in Madani tahrir and developed broader and strengthened links with other revolutionary forces. But of course, they didn't. They they instead decided to be very divisive. And to privilege and believe in electoral processes as a way of consolidating their power and legitimising their agenda, and of course that didn't work because the the old regime launched this. I think we we can't kind of attribute too much kind of cunning to them, but it was very effective destabilisation campaign that almost immediately saw a retrenchment in the kind of electoral gains that the Brotherhood had made and left Morsi by uh, mid 2012 effectively isolated and alone. Um, the presidency not having a parliament, not having a constitutional assembly, having to force through a very unpo- unpopular constitutional series of, of, of amendments to get a new constitution through, and with no allies either in, in state institutions or on the street.
0: Yeah, I, it, It's a really interesting argument. I, I, I wonder about it because you know, I was there during the, the Mohammed Mahmoud protests and they were ugly, violent, uh, anarchic. There didn't seem to be any political program there at all. It was young street toughs, street toughs uh, kind of a throwing things at buildings. And it, it did not feel to me at all like a revolutionary moment then. And I'm pretty sure it didn't to the brotherhood either. It felt very different from what you saw back in early 2011. I, I wonder if there actually was that kind of uh, uh, coalitional moment that you're talking about there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I, I was there too. I was, I was in Mohammed Mahmoud and in Madama Tahrir. And my experience and my kind of reading of that was that was that really it was a kind of a moment in which people realized that this was in some sense the last chance. And indeed, some very senior Muslim brothers, including uh, Baltegi, actually goes down to Tahrir with a section of the Muslim Brotherhood's youth to kind of um, to, to display their solidarity and to participate in the protests, only to be spurned. By the revolutionaries who are kind of asking, "Well, where are the rest of the movement?" Because precisely as you say, we need extra coordination. We need more resources. We need to kind of have, you know, to, to have that breakthrough. You kind of need to be present. Uh, and instead, they decided uh, to stay at home. It, it's also worth noting that if you kind of read the kind of um, the the kind of um, sorrowful uh, reflections of many senior Muslim brotherhoods. Um, especially written after the coup and after the fourteenth of August uh, massacre in in it's often that exact moment that they pinpoint as the key as a key decision that they should have made. That if they just stayed in Tahrir, if they'd been able to, to sustain the revolutionary coalition for a bit longer, then perhaps different history would have been a bit different.
0: Well, as you said, it's very difficult to assess uh, counterfactuals. Uh, there's a lot more uh, to this book, uh, uh, including uh, your later chapters, quite interesting, on the evolution of the post-coup and the post uh Muslim Brotherhood mobilization, um, which, again, largely fell beyond the radar of a lot of journalists and academics um, who kind of tuned out a lot of that mobilization, I think, for reasons that you identify in the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's really remarkable, the, uh, the, the kind of the coverage of, of, of Egypt and the Arab Spring more, more generally. I, I would say that there really is, or well, there has been at least to date, a really kind of systematic bias in which protest is, is only kind of conducted by nice, hot-warming progressives rather than other people that we might be a bit more suspicious of. And that's a particularly that's particularly salient when it comes to understanding the kind of decisions and trajectory of the Muslim Brotherhood after the coup. I, I think that as a political scientist, when the coup happened, again, I I was kind of sitting in in Cairo as it unfolded. Uh, My expectation, which would be my theoretically relevant expectation from from the kind of political science literature, would be that you know when you have Islamists who are denied gains at the ballot box and then you know suffer really quite significant repression, that their first response is going to be suicide bombs and and terrorism and violent insurgency. But actually, instead, and, and perhaps even to their credit, the Brothers decide to consolidate the movement and actually copy the repertoire of mobilisation that's pioneered during the 25th of January revolution and launch you know, nationwide street protests. I count, I think it's over 3,000 uh, protests launched by the Muslim Brotherhood and their allies just in the six months. Uh, following the coup, and yet th- this kind of you know street-level activism gets basically no attention um, in any kind of international media or in much of the kind of social science literature that's emerged um, following um, the you know that addresses of the Arab Spring, and, and and why that is again I think it could be just because we don't associate you know somewhat you know peaceful non-violent protest with Islamists, and, and also because over time and as a function of the kind of very harsh repression that the, the regime was meeting out to, to these protests the protests became interestingly uh, kind of circumscribed while you still had very very high rates of, of, of daily protests they started to play out in areas where it wasn't really easy to see them so the regime had learned very quickly that you couldn't allow um, not just Muslim brothers but other groups as well to mobilize in these kind of central areas in squares in public road in, in main roads in the kind of very centers of cities and instead that they were pushed out into residential areas popular quarters of course the places where most egyptians actually live but in the in the in the process of doing so they became somewhat invisible they they fell beneath the threshold both of scholarly and, and maybe the media's visibility just because they were in areas where it was kind of difficult to detect them
0: All right, well, this has just been, uh, uh, it's a fascinating book, Egypt in a Time of Revolution, Contentious Politics in the Arab Spring. Uh, We've been speaking with the author, Neil Ketchley. Um, uh, Neil, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Mark.